This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Wong. It's safe to say that many businesses around the world have found the past few years tough, having to change, adapt, and problem solve at a much more accelerated pace than ever before. If there's one thing we've learned, it's that there's no immediate cure or magic solution to save and improve your business. But what kind of questions can we ask and what kind of work can we do to get the ball rolling? I have author of Save the Silver Bullet, Ben De Haldevang, on the line with me to discuss that and more. Uh, my background is uh, uh, integration, post-merger integration and transformation work. I've spent the last 20 or so years, I know that's scary, certainly for me anyway, um, uh, doing integration work around the world, um, in the States, in, in Europe, in, and, and mostly in Asia. The last eight, nine years um, before I came back to Europe was, uh, was in Asia. Um, so uh, as a program director, as someone who consults and helps with clients uh, work through that uh, through that work. Um, I have a sort of weird peripatetic background. I grew up uh, in Egypt, in Australia, I worked in Switzerland and the States. Um, uh, so I've spent a lot of my life um, around the world traveling and, uh, and and working with clients in different places. And I suppose that's what makes me um, tick. That's what I get excited about. That's what I, what I enjoy doing. Excellent. So today we're here to talk uh, primarily about your book, but also about, you know, in general, sort of um, delving into some ideas for businesses to use and to learn from as well. Now, your book is called Save the Silver Bullet. And the first thing I want to ask you is what made you write the book in the first place? Yeah, so um, I I come at uh, transformation from the point of view of doing it rather than talking about it. And um, the last um, I've read a lot of literature around around how uh, integration works and how transformation works. And and indeed, some good friends of mine have written some really interesting books on that subject. But it almost always comes from the point of view of strategy. So, you know, what's the direction of travel? You know, and and there's an element of some someone with a very big brain sitting sitting in a in an ivory tower somewhere uh, coming up with a great idea about what uh, an organization should do with very little focus on um, the actual challenge of doing it. And so it seemed to me that there was a real gap in the market to get a view of what implementation execution actually looks like. Um, and And I thought the best way to approach that was really to talk to lots of people who had done that for a living, who'd spent um, a lot of time um, uh, writing and talking about, or working working on on transformation work. Um, And so um, with that in mind, I spoke to about 120 of those uh, people around the world um, uh, in lots of different locations. This this book has actually got quite an Asian flavour to it, uh, particularly Southeast Asian flavour to it, Um, uh, obviously with with my practice over there for a number of years. And they both, they all told me two stories. They told me it's a story of success and a story of failure. Uh, and that was the framework that I used to, 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 to talk to the book. Um, so it, what, what is it? So what, one of the things that comes out of, um, of, of strategy-related written books as opposed to implementation-related books is that there is a tendency towards trying to make things really simple. Um, now, the reality is things are not simple. Things are not simple for one very simple reason, which is that they're full of people like you and me, i.e. people. Um, and we make things very complex. We make change very difficult. And we make organizations struggle with that. Um, so, and, and I really want to sort of revel in the glorious complexity, if you like, of, of organizations which are driven by, by people and by that sort of uh, approach. Um, so that was what really drove where, where I was going. I have a fundamental challenge too, which is that I don't want to spend 
all my career working in an industry that continuously fails. Um, and the, the reality is the rates of, of success in both internal transformation and in M&A are still incredibly low. Uh, there are some statistics in the book which really are quite scary. And the volumes continue to go up. So, um, you know, that's not a legacy that I would like to have um, for me. Mm. Um, I don't think anyone else working in that industry would either. Mm-hmm, definitely. You know, I think that uh, you make a really good point about the fact that a lot of um, books about how to improve your business are very theory based. It's all sort of ideas or, you know, tips that they don't really seem to have any practical applicability. Right. So I yeah. think, you know, sharing these stories and sharing these lived experiences is really important to have very concrete examples about how to put some of this thought into practice, I, I suppose. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I think that's right. I think, you know, so theory is all fine. Um, and it's an important thing, right? You know, I, I struggled a little bit when I was writing my own, this book, you know, that, that, that how do you structure something without some sort of framework? And there is a framework in this book, uh, which I struggled with to, 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 uh, to put in place. But I did finally have to do that. But I suppose it's a theory based, uh, it's a framework based on experience rather than based on sitting in a darkened room somewhere mm. with a cold towel on your head, which is the way to go to Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, as you mentioned uh, earlier, you ask uh, the people in the book to share one example of success and one example of failure. And that yeah. is sort of the main idea in the book, right? It's sort of looking at what makes a company successful. And um, one of your primary questions in the book is, what are the conditions that consistently deliver failure? So can you give me some insight into why you framed the book uh, around that question? Yeah, so it's a really, you know, the, the, the book is named Save the Silver Bullet for a reason, which is that there aren't any magical solutions because there just aren't any magical solutions in the reality of what we do, right? There are lots of little interventions. And that's something, something that people often get, you know, are slightly surprised by is that when I, when I talk to them about, you know, single things that have happened in, in the course of a transformation where I've, I've worked on a project. Um, uh, and, and, and I tell them, I'll, I'll give you an example, you know, the, the, the best thing ever that a very senior CFO um, did, who was a fairly average leader of his function, went into a, a large function role as a result of the integration process. Um, the best thing he ever did was remove the doors from his office. Now, you know, when I when I talk to my my client, my um, uh, the, the the kids that I lecture at, at uh, university and say, look, that's an example of great success. They look at me and say, you've got to be joking. That can't be the reason why there is success. But so the whole idea about silver bullet is that it basically taught it it. it it, it gets a root away from that concept of that there is some magical formula that you can uh, follow that, that pursues the process. But back to your question about what are the sort of um, conditions of failure? Well, um, it won't surprise you that they probably fall into a number of buckets. You know, there is a bucket around leadership. Um, the, the challenge with transformation um, and integration in, in a leadership context is that decisions have to be made even faster than they would normally be made. Um, and when you're doing that across two organizations, one of which you're very familiar with, one which you're not familiar with, um, that is a really hard thing to do. Now, when you're not set up as an organization to make decisions quickly, um, i.e. there are lots and lots of layers of hierarchy, and people don't trust the organization enough to push those decisions down to the right level, um, I'll give you a, a great example in a minute, then you end up in an organization which is uh, which takes forever to make the most basic decisions. The example I was going to give you, a professional services company, um, uh, actually based in the UK, this one, um, from a number of years ago, where um, I, I was invited into a uh, senior exec 
meeting. Uh, pretty well, any, anyone who had a C in their job title was around the room. Um, and, and the main point on the agenda to talk about was a number of car parking spaces that were going to be required at the new head office building. Now, this wasn't a big business, right? But it was quite an extraordinary agenda item for, uh, for an organisation like that. I think I, I did actually ultimately price the cost of the meeting, which I think it was, uh, I can't remember what the number was, but there was an awful lot of very expensive people sitting around the room. Um, and eventually they made they made a decision as to what the number was. They referred it back down to the head of facilities who said, well, that's ridiculous because we've never had more than 15. So, you know, let's let's add a few more and make sure that we're comfortable. And then it went back up to the senior executive to uh, to verify, to validate. Now, that process took six weeks. Now, can you imagine if you were sitting as an employee in that organisation, the merger had just been announced with lots of fanfare and lots of excitement, um, and uh, the first decision that comes out of the C-suite is uh, a process of car parking, which takes six weeks for them to complete. You're going to look at that and say, this is not going to go very well. Mm. Um, so it's that slow pace around decision-making is the first bit. Um, that's, I think, really important. I think the second thing that really happens, and there's a very big section in the book on this, which is that we basically, that organisations that fail tend to forget the customer. Um, in some cases, they actually do that willingly. In most cases, it's just through dereliction of duty. Um, but um, in, the, in the cases where they do it willingly, there's a, there's a great story about, you know, uh, if you ask the question, if you ask the customer what they wanted 200 years ago, they would say, I wanted a faster horse. And there's an element of arrogance about that statement, which is that, you know, they don't know what they're, what they're looking for. Um, we're, we're here to guide them, you know, in inverted commas, as to what the future looks like. Um, and that is a really dangerous place to go because without, without a customer, you've really got a problem. In fact, two of the case studies in the, in the story really talk to the customer as being at the core of, of the book. There's a story about Nextel, which talks to that, uh, which is really important about how they bring the customer to the core of it. And in, in many cases, bringing a customer to the core of a process almost provides the organization with a sense of purpose, which is obviously a really fundamental part of any integration process. So I think those are two things that you would note. Um, there are some other things that around failure that are worth just thinking about. You know, I, I think, um, it, but I suppose they apply to many organizations, whether you're in a steady state or you're in a, in a, um, in a, uh, in a, in a transformation process. Um, you know, too much autocracy, um, too much centralized control, a lack of trust. These are all things that you see. And one other thing that I, is worth talking to, and it's a really interesting thing for me, is that you know when you go and talk to a bunch of analysts about companies and you ask them what sort of leaders those companies really want or should have, they often talk about this great strategic brain that I've mentioned a few times that is really important for seeing the future of the business. It's quite, quite where they get the crystal ball for, I don't know. But anyway, that's the, often the view, right? Um, uh, the reality is when you get into a transformation or a, an integration process, um, what you actually need is an empathetic leader. You need someone who can listen. Um, because the reality is nothing's going to happen unless he or she has the ability to attract um, people around him or her to make sure that they actually buy the, the vision and buy the journey and get involved in the journey. So transformation is really about our vision. It's not about my vision. And that is a very big contrast from, uh, from perhaps what the analysts might be looking for, what they typically want to, to see. Mm, yeah, very, very good point. And that actually leads me very nicely into what I'll be asking you after the break, which is all about the issue of, of uh, employee engagement. But for now, we do have to take a short break for some messages. This is Razor Game, and I'm speaking to Ben de Haldevang, uh, who is the author of Save the Silver Bullets. This is BFM 89.9.
bluff-free medium, BFM 89.9. Listening to Raise Your Game, I'm Christine Wong, and on the line with me today is author of Save the Silver Bullet, Ben Taldevang. Uh, we're discussing essentially, you know, the ideas behind a failure and success when it comes to a business, as well as you know why strategy isn't always the most you know efficient way to go about things or to improve your business as well. And before the break, we talked a little bit uh, about some of the conditions that consistently deliver failure. And you know, in the book, uh, there are all these stories about successes and failures, but. Uh, Generally speaking, there are a few issues that sort of crop up as, um, I guess, relatively consistent problems for a lot of companies. And one of the biggest issues for companies right now is this severe lack of employee engagement. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about that disconnect and why you think that's happening? Yeah, I, w- I will absolutely do that. And, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting question that you asked there, Christine, because um, employee engagement is obviously critical and, as you say, it's at records lows around the world. I saw something in the, on um, uh, on our website recently which absolutely um, blew my socks off, which talked about something, I think it was called the Great Resignation. There's an idea that something like 45% of the world's population are looking to, to move job at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that is a really scary prospect for, for, for any organisation, any leadership around, around the organisation. So employee engagement, why is it so low at the moment? Well, I think it relates to the fact that um, the, the disconnect between the top of an organization and the bottom of an organization is as wide as it's ever been. And that is a, that's a scary place to be, right? Because if you feel that your leaders don't have any idea of what you as a generation or you as an individual need, um, then you're not really going to invest much of your loyalty into that organization. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that um, not only is that gap so huge, um, it's obviously the consumers of your product are increasingly looking like your generation and not the generation of but the generation that leads the organisation. So you have lots of evidence to suggest that the direction that the organisation is going may or may not be correct based on your own experience um, as a consumer of, the, of, of, of products. Uh, and that's you know that's a reflection of the sort of techno- technology change that we've gone through and the inability of people of my generation, sadly. To, to respond to those in an effective way. Hopefully, that's not always true for everyone, but it's true for lots of people that they struggle with that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, a lack of trust and a, and a lack of knowledge and understanding um, that's driving uh, that process. I think the third thing is there's a sort of, there's a real dichotomy out there, which is there's an expectation about loyalty um, towards an organisation. I did, I did some work in Asia with uh, Asian leaders a number of years ago, and it was very clear that loyalty was a very important component, way above capability and, and and anything else, which is really interesting. It's a really interesting Asian dimension to the to to the question around here. Um, but obviously, that loyalty also um, you know it goes in both directions. And if and if organisations and if people see that there are wholesale changes taking place which affect their colleagues, um, then they're not necessarily going to be very loyal to them that way. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what's what's employee what, what's interesting about employee engagement is that. And again, this comes to a, a, a fundamental challenge that I, I put to lots of people out there, which is that the perception is that human capital is this sort of fixed concept. It's a bit like any piece of machinery um, uh, which operates at a certain level of capacity, uh, and that's it. Well, the reality is that human capital doesn't work like that at all. It's incredibly plastic. You know, if you know, if you were threatened in terms of a job 
Christine, you wouldn't be spending eight hours a day um, doing your job. You'd be spending seven hours a day probably thinking about what you can do next and worrying about that and maybe an hour um, looking at the job. Now, every integration, every transformation process has a level of threat about it, which looks a little bit like that, basically. And yet there's no effort to try and accommodate and deal with that mm. um, uh, and, and respond to that. Because that's not a that's not a threat that necessarily relates just to employment prospects. It also re- reflects the fact that, you know, perhaps I, I go home early on a Friday because it's my job to pick up the kids. And in the past, that's been acceptable, whereas is it acceptable going forward? And yet that's a really fundamental part of my life. You know, I might work from you know, the, the current situation where we've been working from home really effectively. Um, and yet there's now an expectation that we go back to the office in lots of environments um, is a big problem, I think, because people say, well, you've trusted me to work in this environment in, for this long. And now you're saying you don't do that anymore. So trust is really f- at the heart of it. But the, the last thing I want to talk about um, with regard to employee engagement, um, is 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 two things. There's a concept um, uh, by uh, a French author called Manuel Gobiol, um, which which I've taken forward. It's, it's probably ten years old, but it's a really powerful concept. And the concept is that we have two types of time that we have with our employers. The first type of time is our contracted time, which is the time that we're expected to be in the office or engaged in work, right? And that's a you know, normal standard thing that's part of the employment contract. Right? But the other part of our time that we have is our discretionary time. Now, depending on how um, we engage with our employer, we are likely or less likely to use that discretionary time to think about work. Now, discretionary time, not only is it extra time, which is obviously wonderful, but it's it's really valuable extra time. It's the time that you spend thinking about a problem. It's the time you think about, you spend thinking about a particular issue that you need to resolve. It's the time that you could spend thinking about you know, your kid's education or what you want to have for supper tonight. Um, But in fact, what you're doing is you're thinking about uh, an an employer's issue and the the employer that you work for's issue and challenge and how you're going to resolve those things. So it it is thinking time and therefore it's incredibly valuable time. It's not just doing time. Now, Individuals just won't give of that time if they're not engaged in the, in, in the organisation. Mm. And that is a real loss um, for most businesses. Right, absolutely. I like your point about how loyalty has to go two ways. And as you mentioned, that is um, you know, a very common Asian expectation for a lot of businesses to assume, oh, just because you know you have a job, you should be loyal to the company. But as you mentioned, you know, it has to you the company has to earn the employer's loyalty in a way, right? So it can't just be um, totally one-sided. So that is is a really good point. Uh, Now, I do want to move on because you also mentioned before the break that it is more important than ever that organizations are able to make quick decisions, right? And um, in order to, you know, basically get stuff done, but also, uh, you know, especially in these times, as we've seen, it's really important to be, to have that structure in place where you can make decisions very quickly. However, I think that this has also led to um, perhaps a movement towards sort of short-term thinking as well. So how do you think that has affected, you know, a a leadership approach to business in in terms of that? So you point to two really important things, Christine. So the reason why I think short-term thinking is really, or short-term decision-making is really important is because uh, if it's at the right level, Mm. at the level that people 
who understand what they're trying to do and why they're doing it. And there's a great assumption that is the more senior you get in an organization, the better you are at this process. That's not that's not the case, right? So the closer you are to the decision, often you can make a better decision. Now, so that's not that's not about the senior exec making really quick decisions. It's about the right people at the right level mm-hmm. making decisions in a timely way, mm-hmm. which relates to their particular issue and challenge. Um, and and there, so you're not going through you know levels and levels of hierarchy to get to that decision. You're just having it done at the right level. That requires you know a lot of trust. It requires a lot of autocracy. It allows a decentralized sort of decision making process where those people are allowed and are recognize the fact they have the authority to make those decisions. That's the that's the key to that sort of quick decision making process. In terms of short term thinking, it's you know it's a really good question because and I have some sympathy with leadership around this because the the pace of change is so dramatic at the moment. It's really hard to try and think, you know, more than two or three years out out in, in front of you. Um, um, but I think, you know, we sort of need to think, of, we need to force ourselves into that process sometimes. And I think it's an important thing to do. And, and some ways, you know, there are lots of exercises that one can go around, but there, there's some very famous exercises that one can do um, to go and put yourself in the right mental position uh, to, to sort of think about that. And often that comes from a sort of personal perspective. So, you know, if, I, so if, if I'm thinking about, or if I want to think about what, uh, what my future looks like, I'd probably look at my family life and say, okay, so what, where are my children going to be in five years' time? What, what's their state? What, and, where, and, and then I think of my personal circumstances and I start to think about what does that, what might that look like? And then I sort of track back from that to see if I can build a plan. Now, organizations can do the same thing and, and successfully do do the same thing as well. But it's um, like politicians, um, um, organizations have the same challenge, which is that making a mistake is increasingly difficult for leaders as it is for anyone else. Mm. Uh, it's much less likely that you're going to make a decision about a short-term decision than you are going to make about a long-term decision. And perhaps that's driving that. Um, I don't know what the current leadership tenure levels are like, so length of service of, for leadership in Malaysia. I suspect they're slightly longer than they are in the in the US and the UK, where the average CEO stays around three to four years. Um, so... For those people, um, there is absolutely no value in making a decision that extends beyond their tenure, um, because even if it's massively successful, they won't benefit from it. So I mean, that's a very cynical concept, but that's the reality of where we are at the moment. Um, hmm. Very, very interesting. And, you know, I think that uh, especially because of the pandemic, a lot of leaders might feel very pressured to not have these plans. I mean, I guess you think about the sort of advice you would get from from the books that you mentioned, right? Those strategy books, uh, you know, uh, a while ago or before the pandemic. And they're all, you know, think about your five-year plan, your 10-year plan. But it, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to put yourself in that mindset when you have no idea what is going to change even within 24 hours, right? So it's 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 a dangerous trap to fall into, I suppose. But at the same time, as as uh, as you brought up, you can sort of empathize with a lot of leaders where you are sort of forced into that way of thinking after a point. I think you're right, Christine. I think I think the the thing I would say, and it comes out of the book really clearly, mm-hmm. is that if you can set your organization up from the point of view of how it works, so both the chemistry, the people, the the you know the products, the locations, the all that the chemistry part of it and the physics, the ways of working, the informal networks, all that. If you can set your organization up in that way to be successful in transformation and integration, then that is a legacy that you can leave. I suppose an organization who is good, which is good at doing those things, A, they're quite rare, mm. but um, 
if you can if you can if you can create that capability within your organization then you really are insuring yourself against the future because that is something that is that is a legacy that can carry on forever if people get comfortable in a, as an as an employee in an organization if you're comfortable that your organization manages change really effectively and you're excited about the prospect of the next one and the next one and the next challenge that comes through and you see there's a logical and there's a empathetic way of operating in the context of those uh, to, in, in the context of that transformation process, then A, that's going to give you longevity there because you're going to want to stay. And B, the organization just gets better. It's muscle memory, if you like, of doing transformation work gets better and better. Now, I know I keep on talking about transformation and people might say, well, that's a bit of a niche. The reality is it's not, right? It is touching all of us all the time uh, and it will continue to, whether that's, you know, the digital transformation journey that lots of organizations are going through or it's the merger and acquisition journey that people go through from a growth perspective. You know, there are lots of places where transformation is going to hit you. Um, but one of the reasons why I do what I do is because I have an opportunity to influence um, you know, people's careers in terms of their experience and their knowledge of work, working within this space, um, because I think it's going to be increasingly core to their to their their process. And what's really interesting, what I get really excited about, and, and you know, again, talking to my that sort of the 120 people that are sort of looking over my shoulder who who were part of this journey, if you like, um, would agree with this concept, is that in a transformation you have the ability to create something really quite unique. It's almost like its own little micro climate um, of, of culture and ways of working, um, which sees, you know, which transcends what happens in, in some of the other BAU type environment. And sometimes you see that microclimate, you know, because it's very honest, right? So you're in this environment, it's very clear, those people who are being political, they just don't last very long, because it's not a place that you can do that in. It's very clear, very open uh, in that environment. You know, just mistakes are, are able to be made, uh, and people learn from them. And there's an understanding that it's just the natural way of operating in this space, because we're doing something that is challenging and difficult. And mm. um, so there's those two traits by themselves create um, a culture within that transformation space, which is really attractive and really interesting to work in and very exciting to work in and sometimes you see that culture transcend itself into the organization overall and the organization take a big leap forward that's what that's what drives me that's why i do what i do well, fantastic. On that note, though, unfortunately, we've run out of time. But thank you very much, Ben, for sharing uh, your insights and also some thoughts around Save the Silver Bullet. Fantastic. Thanks, Christine. Really good to meet you. You've been listening to Raise Your Game with me, Christine Wong. I've been speaking to Ben Dehaldevang, the author of Save the Silver Bullet. If you'd like to catch up on the conversation, you can head over to our website to bfm.my. You can also download the BFM app that's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play to listen back to the podcast. You're listening to BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.